100 years ago today, the Anglo-Irish Treaty was signed by Michael Collins at Downing Street. The rest is history. Shane McElhatton is the series editor of the Decade for Commemorations of Commemorations for Radio 1 and he's there for Morning Ireland in London this morning. Shane, where exactly are you? Morning, Audrey. I'm in the RT Roadcaster studio outside 22 Hans Place, Knightsbridge, London, one of the city's smartest addresses as it was 100 years ago when it was the headquarters of the Irish delegation at the negotiations on the Anglo-Irish Treaty. It was right here that one of the most momentous decisions ever made in Irish history was made. It was from here, pretty much from where I'm sitting, that 100 years and seven hours ago, the delegation, Arthur Griffith, Michael Collins, George Gavin Duffy, Robert Barton and Eamon Duggan, returned to Downing Street to sign the treaty with the British Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, and his team. It was not a happy journey. The Irish delegates had argued furiously for hours in the building beside me over the offer the British had made the night before. The Prime Minister Lloyd George had warned the Irish delegation they had to decide that night whether to accept or reject the terms on offer. If they rejected, the War of Independence was back on in three days. The reason for the agonising was the terms on offer were described by the British as the best that were going to be made. They held out the prospect of a British withdrawal, Irish independence and everything that a free country could wish for, the law, economy, finance, health, agriculture, even defence. It was more than any of the empire's dominions had, like Australia or Canada. The problem was what was missing. Ireland would not be a republic. It would be a member of the British Commonwealth, would swear an oath of allegiance, the British monarch would be head of state, Northern Ireland would, if it wished, and it did, remain part of the United Kingdom, and the British Navy would retain access to several ports. Here was the dilemma. Real, practical independence of a kind Ireland had never known, but the republic that had been declared in 1916 and then defended in the War of Independence was to be consigned to history. That was a pill too bitter for many Irish men and women to swallow, and the the delegates knew it. Collins himself was dismayed at how so many of the best fighters and the best women of Common Naman who made the war possible were repulsed by what was agreed here. They regarded it as a price worth paying to the delegation. They knew that in Ireland all hell was going to break loose. In the end, as the night turned from the Monday into the Tuesday, the Irish made their decision and began the short journey back to Downing Street, a decision that has echoed down a hundred years. So how will you be marking it later in the programme? Who will you hear from? Yeah, I'll be here in the RT Roadcaster studio with Irish historians Heather Jones and Morris Walsh. We're going to be discussing the hard questions. The hardest of them is this one. Were the lads mugged? Did they go into Downing Street, get bluffed by David Lloyd George with his ridiculous theatrical deadlines and threats of war and come out in a political sense without their trousers? Because there is a view in Ireland that this was a complete disaster. Another battle of Kinsale where over one night all that could have been won was lost. The nationalists of the six counties abandoned to their fate. The dream of a republic was crushed and the slide to the civil war began. We're going to be putting that view to the test, as well as the alternative view, which says, look hard, look hard at the concessions the British made before and during the negotiations in their determination to settle the conflict and get a deal over the line. It was seen as as near to complete independence as could be hoped for and a platform to build on. We're also going to be looking at the price that was paid by the men on both sides in that room in Downey Street for the signatures they put on the treaty. We're going to be be live with you after half eight and also on the digital news channel and hopefully people will stay with us on the news channel after nine o'clock. John S. Doyle is going to be here soon with a special edition of It Says in the Papers looking at the incredibly detailed coverage of the signing by newspapers in Ireland, Britain and the United States. And also a reminder that uh, David McCullough this evening will be bringing the 6-1 TV news live from Downing Street. So it's back to you in studio, Audrey. We look forward to all of that. Shane McElhatton in London on 100 years since the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Thank you so much indeed. Let's head back to London and join Shane McElhatton. Shane. As we were saying earlier, Audrey, today is the 100th anniversary of the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty in London. The negotiations were closely followed around the world and newspapers responded to the signing with incredibly extensive and detailed coverage. Here's how the newspapers at home and abroad covered the events of 100 years ago today, written and read by John S. Doyle. 
Dark clouds of war scattered, says the headline in the Freeman's Journal, over a report that an agreement was reached at the peace conference in London early this morning. Most papers report from 10 Downing Street that when the Sinn Féin delegates were stepping into their automobile to depart at 2.15 this morning, Mr Michael Collins was asked for the news. Not a word, he said. Are you coming back, he was asked. I can't say, he replied. The Freeman's Journal praises what it calls the honourable practice of the Irish delegates in refusing to make any statement pending the publication of the official communique. Not a tittle have they communicated to the outside world, says the Irish Independent approvingly in an editorial. The New York Times reports that a few minutes after Mr Collins's remarks, a cabinet minister came out and said the news was not at all bad. He stepped back into the Premier's residence and came out again then and declared an agreement has in fact been reached. The Freeman's Journal says that the Anglo-Irish Peace Treaty will rank in history with some of the most epoch-making events in the world's annals. The feud and friction of centuries come to an end, says the Independent. If the treaty reconciles Ireland to the Empire, the Irish Times says, nobody will welcome it more gladly than the loyalists of Southern Ireland. For them, Ireland does not exist and never will exist apart from the empire which the blood of their sires and sons has cemented. Lord Birkenhead, one of the British negotiators quoted in The Independent, described the decision of the British Cabinet as the most vital for 240 years and said, never can the old quarrel be the same. And in what the paper calls a remarkable tribute to the Irish delegates, he said, I am certain that they will go back to Ireland taking their lives in their hands to fight their battle as confidently as I and my colleagues go in to battle on this side. The Times of London says the Sinn Féin delegates have proved themselves courageous statesmen. Instead of pursuing the shadow of an Irish union enforced by legislation, they have played boldly for the substance. The Belfast newsletter is not impressed at this morning's developments. The editorial writer says that the government has dragged the honour of Great Britain in the mire, gaining nothing but the contempt of its enemies while losing the confidence of its friends. The Freeman's Journal sets out the four forms of oath that were discussed at the talks. As the paper notes, the Irish delegates said that a personal oath of allegiance to the Irish Free State and to the British Commonwealth would be freely taken and scrupulously honoured whereas an oath of allegiance to the king would be taken by many Irishmen only under duress and would therefore be valueless. The text of the treaty is remarkably carried in full in the New York Times, right across the front page. Irish free state created, Ulster cannot stop it, say two headlines. The Freeman's Journal representative in London notes that the British Prime Minister, Mr Lloyd George, signed the treaty with the same pen with which he signed the Versailles Treaty three years ago. In another handwriting detail, the paper reports that the signatures in Gaelic characters of the Irish delegates greatly interested the British delegates, and Mr Austin Chamberlain submitted them to long and searching scrutiny through his monocle. The Independent has a poem to mark the signing of the treaty by H.N.R., it starts with the lines, Hail freedom, hail the dawn of liberty, from seven long centuries of woe and war, our land once more is ours to make or mar. John S. Doyle with the papers from a hundred years ago. We're back with more from London with historians Heather Jones and Morris Walsh after half past eight. Good morning from London. Uh, you're joining us here in our mobile studio outside number 22 Hans Place, Knightsbridge, the London headquarters of the Irish delegation that signed the Anglo-Irish Treaty 100 years and about six hours ago. Now, as I'm looking around Hans Place, it's all very ordinary here today, but the scenes here in those early hours of 6th of December were unprecedented. There was a thick and freezing London fog, typical of the time, armed men standing and patrolling right where we're sitting, there was a line of cars outside the house, engines running, engines turned off, engines running again, as the members of the delegation argued back and forth 
Are we going back to Downing Street to accept the terms the British have, have offered us, or are we sending back a message that they were rejected? And a short distance away in Downing Street, the British negotiators were looking at each other, increasingly convinced they'd never see the Irish delegates again. In the end, those arguing for acceptance, Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins, then Eamon Duggan, persuaded Robert Barton and George Gavin Duffy to join them on the journey back to Downing Street from here. I'm joined in our mobile studio by Irish historians Morris Walsh, author of Bitter Freedom, Ireland in a Revolutionary World, and Heather Jones, Professor of Modern Contemporary European History at University College London, and author of For King and Country, The British Monarchy and the First World War. Morris, do you want to set the scene for us? Um, because people in Ireland take so much of this for granted. Oh yeah, they went over it like an EU summit, you know, an ordinary summit. But really, the implications are simply not grasped anymore. What, what do you think is the most important thing for people to try and imagine as how, what the significance of, of what was going on here was? There was a template for this, but the usual Irish politicians in negotiating in London were constitutional nationalists. This, these were the representatives of a guerrilla movement which um, had proclaimed their struggle throughout the British Empire, and now here they were coming to the heart of London to negotiate uh, some, a settlement. So uh, an unprecedented situation, Lloyd George acknowledged, you know, we've, never, we've never had revolutionaries in town before, and they attracted a lot of attention for that. Obviously, a lot of attention was directed at Michael Collins' press attention because he was the, the mystery man of the delegation, etc. But they, they stayed here in this extraordinarily well-appointed part of London. It still is, in fact, I think, by the looks of it now, it's, it's, the, it's the residence of Russian oligarchs. But at that time, it, it was a very, they dressed in their suits, they had Rolls Royces bring them to Downing Street. In other words, they acted at all times like the representatives of a state, and a state maybe in waiting, but certainly presented themselves as a state, just as they might have presented themselves if they got to Paris on those terms for the Treaty of Versailles. Two years earlier, yes, indeed. Um, uh, Heather, could it be seen as a window of opportunity that, that had presented itself? And there were two things that, that were um, happening at the time that allowed this window to, to exist. The pause of the war, independence, but also pol British political arrangements. Yes, there's a coalition government, so any, any British government that acts at this moment won't face up an, a strong opposition in the House of Commons. So the fact that the Tories and Liberals are in government together means they can both share this moment of, of peacemaking. And if we think, Morris mentioned Versailles, the arc that, that, that the Irish have travelled from being in Versailles and not being actually given any access to negotiation to being here in the centre of London and, you know, in, in the West End as delegates uh, negotiating with, with the British Empire is quite dramatic. And that, that moment of truce in the summer of 21 is really key to bringing that about uh, and the coalition and the fact that, uh, that, that there isn't going to be a Tory uh, obstruction to anything Lloyd George does. So the, there was no Tory ambush waiting for him because the Tories were in the room with him? Yeah, no. There, there, there would, the Tories, they could bring their backbenchers, their hardliners along. He'd also got rid of Boner Law, who's in France, who's one of the most hardline uh, unionist figures. Also, in Ireland, the situation has changed too. The Southern Unionists have come on board with accepting a potential Dominion solution. And we've had the King's speech indicating the monarchy is also pushing now for a Dominion solution as well. So a lot of things have changed in the summer of 21. But there were red lines, there were opening positions. Now, Mars, do you want to talk about, um, for example, the British side? What was their set of red lines? Well, the British side was, for the British, the idea of a country leaving the British Empire was unthinkable. So the red line was to keep Ireland within the empire. The other idea, which was you know, floating around in all of these counter-proposals and counter-proposals, the idea of even of a republic in the empire, which, of course, happened later, uh, was completely unthinkable then. So we, so that was it. And so Lloyd George's opening salvo to De Valera in July, when they have these, this exchange of letters that goes on for a couple of months before the delegates get to London, is all about saying, right, you have to be in the empire, but within that, we could give you any amount of freedom, really, dominion status. And in a way, that's how the negotiations proceeded, which, in, in other words, the substance of Irish... But Lloyd George is trying to persuade de Valera and the other uh, the, uh, representatives is that the substance of Irish independence can be contained within the wrapper of dominion status. What were the Irish red lines? 
the Irish Red Line is really um, getting getting a republic. That's something that meant that all of the TDs have taken an oath to an Irish republic in the Dáil. And so the idea of, of, of going back on that and having a dominion where you would have an oath of allegiance, um, all the dominion parliaments had an oath of allegiance to the British monarch, that's anathema uh, to, to many on, on, on the Irish side. But they are prepared, de Valera is prepared to accept a compromise if he can get an all Ireland dominion, so if he can get uh, the northern government placed underneath the Dublin government, he will accept that as a compromise position. Otherwise, he wants a 26-county republic coming out of this. And why did he not go? Why did he not lead the delegation? There, there's a lot of debate about why de Valera didn't go, and ultimately, I think, you know, one, one will never fully know the answer to this, but I think the July meetings in London had actually gone quite badly. Um, de Valera meeting with Lloyd George, he was he was quite long-winded, he didn't get to the point, um, he was he spoke in abstract terms, Lloyd George found him, very, you know, very um, kind of amateur, actually, in some ways, so I think de Valera perhaps personally felt it might be better to send others, but also he felt it was better to wait. So should the negotiations collapse, uh, he could then come in for a final round of negotiations as the president of the republic. Remember, his title has changed during this period, during this year. He's been president of the executive. He's now president of the republic. So he also sees himself as kind of incarnating the republic. He doesn't necessarily want to besmirch that embodiment of the Republic, the presidential role, uh, with a compromise deal in London either. So there's a lot of reasons, but personally I think it was actually due to the fact that he maybe felt a bit a, a bit unsure about his own uh, negotiating skills in London. Wasn't, wasn't there a sense that um, you hear critics of de Valera that he knew, he knew there was no big Republic deal on offer and he did not want, not want to be around when that was becoming clear? Possibly, but I think everybody knew, they all knew, that once they went into this process from the beginning, from, from, from the truce onwards, that this would be divisive. And, and of course, another reason he's... We, we also need to remember the context for what's going on in Ireland at this time. So during the truce, many people in the IRA are thinking this truce will last for a couple of weeks and we're all, or we'll just get ourselves reorganized. They see themselves as now recognized by the British Army as, as parity, another army, and there's a lot of tension between the British Army. And on the British side, in, in Dublin, there are all sorts of figures like Ormond Winter, who's this sort of intelligence man in the dark, who are all hoping that this fails because they, they, they have the diehards who don't want to lose Ireland. And, and so there's, there's all that kind of tension bubbling around these negotiations as, as, as these go on. And in a way, de Valera, one of the things he does when he's in Ireland is he spends a lot of time touring, our, seeing IRA units, keeping, keeping everybody going in Ireland. And, and that is partly, I think, what he says himself, as he saw himself as this figure who, who would keep all of the factions together. How important was the Boundary Commission that uh, Lloyd George offered to, to rule on the future of Northern Ireland, which has been said to be the most important thing in the treaty? The Boundary Commission was, was something of a fudge. I mean, it was a way of pushing the Northern Ireland question um, further further into the future. Um, it wasn't going to be um, it, it wasn't going to be put in place until much later. And so there was a sense in, in, in the treaty negotiations when they were about to break down that the Boundary Commission then allowed um, a, a kind of a landing strip, if you like, for the sides to compromise to bring the tr bring the treaty uh, in, in, into existence. Now, all of this was possible because Craig wasn't there. Um, and in July, Craig had wavered about whether or not to come to London. He was invited in that first, in that first round of talks. Um, ultimately, by the time we get to the treaty negotiations, he's become much more hardline, uh, talking about sitting on Northern Ireland like a rock, what they have they will hold. Um, and he, you know, he's horrified by the Boundary Commission when that ultimately comes out. So the Boundary Commission's a fudge. They know that they haven't got the unions on board for that. Uh, the two sides of the treaty talks know that. Uh, they sign up to it in the treaty. But it's quite clear that uh, ultimately, um, without unionist buy-in, that probably isn't going to work. It's a bit of wishful thinking, really, on the Irish delegate, delegate side. I'm pretty sure that neither of you is, believes that Lloyd George would have gone back to war. Briefly, Heather. I think it would have been extremely difficult for them to go back to war. Um, the reality was that they had discussed that in the summer when they were talking about whether they would have a truce, whether they would have talks, whether they would continue trying to push the Government of Ireland Act solution, which was Lloyd George's baby, where he wanted a Southern Home Rule Parliament and a Northern Home Rule Parliament. They had accepted they couldn't go there. Neville Macready had talked to the Cabinet and said, what will you do if I have to kill 200 men a day? in Ireland. How will you react? How will the British public react? And they knew they couldn't do that. So they had actually already made the decision for compromise that summer, the British. Going back in with, with the army at that point, after treaty talks, after hopes had been raised for peace, after the British public were expecting them to provide a deal and the Dominions were watching, uh, it, was, it would not have been possible. And especially given how, how badly in world terms 
the, the, the campaign in Ireland had looked up to then. So C.P. Scott, the editor of The Guardian, who was a really close uh, uh, advisor to Lloyd George, um, had been crit critical of Lloyd George's Irish black and tan policy, but uh, throughout the negotiations, C.P. Scott is telling Lloyd George, we cannot go back to war, we cannot go back to violence. Just very briefly for our radio audience, um, Heather, w assess the deal. Was it the best deal possible? I think in the end, the Irish delegation did did cave slightly to pressure. So I think they could have pushed out the negotiations for longer. Um, had the negotiations collapsed, I think there would have been further negotiations. It would have been too difficult to go back in militarily. And Lloyd George was calling their bluff when he talked about terrible war within, within, within days. Um, they, they were calling that night. Griffith wanted to know, have you been in contact with Craig? Will Craig accept the Boundary Commission? Griffith had originally wanted a plebiscite, which would be a much better solution uh, for the northern border areas. Um, ultimately, they were doing plebiscites in other parts of Europe, the British. So I think they could have held out for a bit more on that. On the other hand, the Irish got concessions. They brought the British already from early summer May when they were trying to do the Government of Ireland Act to Home Rule Parliaments. They brought them all the way to Dominion status. That was a really big shift. And then they get concessions during the treaty talks on the Governor General, the right to appoint their own Governor General instead of having someone appointed from London. They get concessions on the army. It was originally going to just be a local army. That was what the British were offering in July. Now they're getting an independent national army. No other Dominion had that. So they are getting really significant concessions here um, that ultimately will matter uh, for the future of Ireland. They realised that the, the changes in world politics and the changes in the British Empire meant that things were possible which weren't possible even a couple of years before. And um, it, one of the um, observations that's made is that uh, the hardliners thought of it as a one-stop shop, a deal or no deal, or, um, whereas the, real, the reality was it was, as you say, Mars, a, a procedure. Yeah, abso absolutely. And I mean, the language being used now about the empire is empire by consent and mandates and um, policies being held in trust and to be granted independence at a later date. So this is a completely different post-World War One world. Um, and in fact, one of the, at, 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 at the talks, uh, uh, Gavin Duffy says that, you know, he says that, um, you know, allegiance is out of fashion. You know, allegiance is not now to monarchs, but to nations. I mean, this is this is a different world, a changing world. And, and dominion status itself is totally in flux and we get the Balfour Declaration in the mid-1920s which effectively grants complete independence to, to dominions and, and that's very clearly on the cards at, at the point of the treaty negotiations already dominions of independent foreign policies in, on, on the cards it's really, you know, it's a changing world But it's important to emphasise that in this new world essentially as prescribed by the mandate system that came out of the Treaty of Versailles there are different divisions of states so there's Premier League states who are essentially white states, the dominions, and Ireland is now part of that. But there are states then that are judged not, states that aren't in the Premier League, who can't govern themselves, who need tutelage. So, you know, the man, many people do argue the mandate system is a kind of cover for an, em, for an empire by another name. But, and of course, what happens during the Civil War then is you get worries, and some, some of the Irish leaders are worried, that Ireland will be seen as not in that Premier League, um, as a, a nation able to govern itself. They're subject to some of the same prejudices that, that, that other countries are, but crucially, they're white, and therefore they are regarded as being part of the Dominion League, in yeah, a way. And the Irish believe that the Dominions will stand by them. So this is one of the things Colin sees, that actually there is a whole global international of Dominions, if you like, that are all pushing for greater independence. So if they could be part of that club, they could actually get more from the British in the 20s as things move forward. And, and if you compare it with India, it's quite interesting, because in India they do try to use oppression. They do try to crush the Indian independence movement after the First World War. If you look at um, the, the massacre at, at Amritsar, you know, that, that's taking the repression line, that, that they didn't go down, they couldn't go down in the same way by bringing in renewed terrible war in Ireland. Um, it, after, after the treaty. And I think that's, you know, that's quite significant, that difference in agendas. There's an interesting passage in your book, um, Morris, uh, where you have um, Lloyd George addressing the Indian administrators. Obviously not Indians, but the, the yeah. British Indian administrators. And he's outlining what's at stake for the British government in negotiating with the Irish. Yeah, so at this moment... Um, the Empire is, is there's, there's that moment where um, when de Valera comes to Downing Street for the first time and Lloyd George shows him the map of the Empire and shows how little Ireland is in relation to all the red. It's huge, but it's now, uh, it, it, it's a huge strain. And so the British are trying to do um, quite, 
almost an impossible thing. They're running this biggest empire, facing all sorts of challenges in Egypt, in India, in Ireland, etc. But they want to do it more, much more cheaply than they did before because the war has bankrupted Britain, essentially. Yeah. So the idea is you now have to have run an empire, Commonwealth, on the cheap. And so... Uh, you, you just have to you, you can't you have to hold the line for Ireland, but at the same time, in, in a way, you've got to give Ireland the, the substance of you know essentially let let Ireland get on get on with itself. But you 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 can't afford to have uh, the, Ireland leaving the empire. But on this, at the same point, you can't dwell too much on Ireland anymore because there are so many challenges ev- everywhere in the empire. And after the war, a lot of troops want to go home. I mean, there's a lot of demobilisation pressure as well. The army is an imperial overstretch, is what you would call it, for the, for, for the early 20s as well. So while they have built up their troops in Ireland during the, during the, the truce period, it's, it's, you know, these are troops who want to go home, who aren't particularly keen to be there. The public opinion in Britain wouldn't support that either. But another key thing has changed as well, and that's the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia. And it's the changing of, of, of public opinion and attitudes all across Europe towards monarchy and towards empire. And, the, the, you know, the, this is a radically changed universe after the First World War. And there is a sense that Ireland is part of that, that, that chain of events too. And Britain's very worried about that. And so hence trying to kind of copper fasten in the oath of allegiance, the king as head of state. This is a way to try and bolster the British monarchy and empire and show that they ha- haven't collapsed in the way that all of their peers, really uh, the, the continental European ones, have or are under pressure of collapsing. So and it's a really that, key point. That really comes mm-hmm. home when you look at the view of the debates in Britain, we, we tend to, in Ireland, very much focus on that, the, the, the emotion, the emotions and the, the tragedy of the dull debates. But actually, if you look at the um, debates in Britain, Lloyd George and everybody else is selling this agreement as, A, uh, the world recognises it as a terrific achievement. B, um, it just shows what a great thing the British Empire is. We can uh, have people have their freedom inside. We can, we can keep people inside the British Empire, but they keep, they're all happy. Nations can coexist. So in other words... What is essentially a, you know, what unionists see as a surrender to Ireland is actually portrayed in by the people um, who who are supporting it as a terrific achievement uh, of empire. Um, Heather, from your researches for your book, um, what what was your would your conclusion be about um, how important it was for any settlement to not um, sideline the crown? It was absolutely pivotal to British identity in this period. So every uh, every member of the British Empire was, was effectively a British subject. That was your nationality. There was no individual nationality, Canadian passport or Australian passport. You were a British subject. So they had this shared nationality and, and an international status, and that's what they wanted Irish people to have as well, whereas obviously uh, the, the negotiators here in London wanted Ireland to have an independent nationality and to be an independent uh, state. So this is the clash of, of, of values around the Oath of Allegiance. And the Irish negotiators do get some watering down of the oath. It becomes an oath to the Irish constitution, becomes an oath of fidelity to the Irish constitution, which names the British monarch as head of state in the constitution rather than a direct oath to the monarch. That causes a lot of anger on the Tory backbenches and actually starts to bring about Lloyd George's downfall because they care so much about this and they argue that he has you know, watered down the crown's sovereignty and that this is not acceptable. The monarchy is at a really high point at, at this stage. It is, it is in charge of kind of the legacy of the war dead. It is, you know, pivotal kind of symbol of Britishness. Um, so, so that's some, that's really kind of I think something the Irish didn't understand just how much this was kind of an ideological value for the British. It was central to their mentalities. And even Lloyd George had come a, quite a journey from kind of being a Welsh patriot to being um, really quite supportive of this idea of the crown as the what he called the the the, the linchpin of the empire. And it's the moment when the celebrity monarchy begins. Mm-hmm. So the tours, the global tours. The global yeah. tours. So when, when De Valera is touring uh, America, he's kind of meeting and crossing over with the Prince of Wales touring America. But it, it's, it's recasting the monarchy for a democratic age. And the way to recast it for a democratic age is to make it into, uh, make the, the, the royal family into celebrities. And this is the moment when the royal family first refers to itself or somebody close to the royal family refers to them as the firm and they appoint press agents. So it is that the, the royal family is the linchpin of the British Empire and, and, and of inter, you know, keeps the empire together, the idea is an entity, but is also the, um, in a democratic age, the, the celebrity that the royals have acquired is a way of keeping the whole show going. I think um, it's been said that uh, Lloyd George said um, was fire and brimstone will fall on our heads if we are seen to sideline the crown 
anybody who, who sidelines the crown will will pay for it. Yeah, and and Griffith again worked this out during the thing and wrote back uh, during the talks and wrote writes back to De Valera. Actually, they really can't. The, the, the crown is really important for them. They, you know, they they can't. I think uh, isn't Lord George has a other line about any governments who gave in on the crown would be smashed to atoms. Yeah, smashed to atoms, I think, is the line. And that's why, I mean, I think when they get to the final stage of negotiations, they don't refer back to, to Ireland. I think that's because the delegation know that, 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 that if they refer back to de Valera, that he hasn't understood this, that this aspect of the Oath of Allegiance is so fundamental to how Britain understands the solution to Ireland and the solution really to the future of the empire. So it's kind of an existential question for them about the survival of a kind of global Britishness that they see as central to, 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 their, to their imperial system. Um, and Griffith himself, remember, had been a proponent of a dual monarchy, right? So in a way, he's falling back on that older, that older template. He is the most moderate of the Irish delegation on this. But all the delegation realise there are huge stakes involved in the Oath of Allegiance. And I think sometimes we think it's just a kind of symbolic row in the door and we can't get our heads mm. around. Why did they you know, get so angry about this? Why did this matter so much? It really did matter. It was about having a separate nationality or not. Uh, it was about being a British subject or not. But it's often cast as it only mattered. You know, th- there was a round that all over this mere symbol, and it only mattered to the to the Irish. But actually, it really mattered to the British in in a way. It, 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 it's often re- recast as is that it was the Irish who got all excited about the crown and whether the crown was there or not. But actually, the British needed it for all the reasons yeah. we've just been talking about. So one of, the, one of the things I wanted to um, address, we didn't get a chance to on, on Morning Island, was um, the two great questions. Um, why why did they, why did they not um, refer back to Dublin? And on the night, why did nobody in that house over there pick up the phone to De Valera? And ironically, the New York Times speculated that a lot of the reason for the delay inside there was they were on the phone when they weren't. Well, De Valera was quite difficult to contact because he was in the west of Ireland. He had gone off. He wasn't in Dublin. So, you know, I mean, the fact that De Valera had made himself quite inaccessible at this crucial point in the talks. And they'd been to Dublin. I mean, they'd been to Dublin on the 3rd of December. What had changed between the 3rd and the 6th? Well, they came back you with know, an instruction not to sign anything. Yes, but they had been appointed plenipotentiaries by the Dáil, and it was the Cabinet that had rode back on that and said, oh, yes, but you must refer back to us. So actually they had a mandate from the Dáil and a mandate from the Cabinet, and they were clashing mandates. Yeah, and if you, go, if you watch the, uh, their discussions, there's also, first of all, referring back to Dublin, to De Valera. Then, oh, why don't we sign it and we'll bring it back to the Dáil? Um, so is it the Cabinet? Is it De Valera? Is it the Cabinet? Is it the Dáil? It does get very confusing as to who... Yeah. But also, I think, probably a decision taken here. If they decided to refer it... Well, if they decided to refer it back, the chances are it wouldn't end up being signed. And half the Cabinet are here. So when we're talking, it's not like there's a cabinet in Dublin and there's plenipotentiaries here. Half the cabinet are here. So it's really de Valera is the issue. And I think the relationship between de Valera and Griffith has got quite poor through the treaty negotiations. I mean, if you look at the start, Griffith goes into the first part of the talks without any instructions from de Valera on what, 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 the, what the position is on Ulster and Northern Ireland. It takes a few days and the talks have already started. That's how late de Valera is in giving him the instructions on that. So that's, you know, I think, I think that by the end, I think the treaty negotiators here want the deal done. They want, and, and they, you know, they, they feel like this is the best that can be achieved in this situation, um, and a lot of their a lot of their strength has already been removed by not having a plan when they go over, not having the, the kind of the, the, not having gamed the whole talks in August and September the way the British have, and, and you know so they're coming with less less instructions to begin with. They get the most they think they can get, um, and then they act knowing that Dublin actually probably may take a different line. And Devlin is departure from Dublin is extraordinary because he says at one point, I think, when, they're, uh, when they come back in December or maybe just in November, oh, I-, I will be as close as possible to the talks without being in London. But actually, when the crucial moment arrives, he's almost you know, made himself unavailable. And his rea- the, the, the amount of time it takes... You know, when the, the news comes out, De Valera goes back on a train, gets back to Dublin, and said he it takes ages. Doesn't even get into he, the mansion he, house. He almost is not wanting to know what went on. Was it that he felt that he had laid down the law on the third of December to, to Griffith? I'm reminding you, Mr. Griffith, don't sign anything without referring him back. Did he? Did he think that he had done the job? Yes, I think he did. I think, and I think in that he was naive. 
Um, I think the pressures that were being that were being put on the delegation here, um, the kind of relationships they'd formed uh, with both with the British um, negotiators and also with each other, um, he was really remote from a lot of that. Um, and 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 you know he had chosen not to go. So ultimately, you know, kind of there's a, there's a kind of question there as to how much someone who'd chosen not to go, who chosen not to kind of put themselves into the really high pressured like kind of pressure cooker environment of this West London uh, situation and Downing Street, then had had you know could could kind of sit back and say, well, no actually no actually no actually and you know his obstructionism at the end you know wasn't it wasn't a pragmatic obstructionism because he wasn't here if he'd been here perhaps as i was saying earlier perhaps the negotiations they I, I think the irish could have got a little bit more if they'd held out i don't think there would have been renewed war but i don't think de valera was the one who was, who was kind of going for a kind of a realistic end point uh, i think the, the things they would have got would have been moderate changes they were never ever going to get a republic and he never tests the premise on which he's doesn't go, which is, I'll come in at the end and I'll deliver something because I'll, I'll be the sort of saviour, cape saviour. He never, it's never put to the test, so we'll never know if De Valera could have come in and got a yeah. deal, which I mean, they couldn't get. But didn't, didn't, didn't um, uh, the, the, uh, the London cabinet members at the, the Mansion House cabinet meeting on the 30th of December, ask him to come back with them. Yeah, they asked him to come back and he wouldn't. So, I mean, I think that... He had a pretty good Russian... Well, he says, Mm. I won't come back because then the British will think we're afraid it's going to break down and they'll just harden up. That... But... so, but he has different reasons every time he talks about why he doesn't go. That's that's the. One. I mean, that is quite plausible. But, but it's clear his delegation want you know they wanted him to come. Yeah. So I think at that point that you know yeah. they, they, and they'd wanted him to go in September as well. So I think I think you know there, there was already quite a bit of feeling, hard feeling if you like from some of the de- delegates before the signing. So I think that animosity that was growing between 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 the delegation here, um, you know, who've had very little sleep, who've rushed back from Ireland in one go, who've exhausted yeah. from that journey, and who are then the, up all the, night the negotiating. Uh, uh, collision in, in, off uh, Hollyhead. Exactly. Their boat had been held up when they were leaving Hollyhead to go back to Dublin uh, for that meeting on the 3rd, where, they're, where, they're, where they're, 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 they're both, the boat had crashed with a smaller boat, and they'd been held up. Their journey was awful. It was really long. They rushed back to London the, the same day. I mean, they must have, by that point, they must have been a little bit fed up, to be honest, uh, with, with, with kind of the people in Dublin maybe not understanding um, the parameters within, within which they were working, which were Dominion status. Mm. I mean, the chance of getting a full republic were, 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 were just non-existent. Was, was the fear that... Um was there a fear by Griffith and Collins that um, uh, involvement by Eamon de Valera would have um, run the whole thing aground? That uh, here's a deal that we can work it, you know, real independence, um, and just about to sign it, and Eamon de Valera starts going back on points, and suddenly the, the, the deal starts receding. Their other colleagues in the delegation might have been emboldened by de Valera then not to sign either. So, yes, the whole thing could have unraveled at that point um, with him. But I think also, I think they were, again, if you look at, across the relations between the delegation and de, de Valera for the whole time from October onwards through December, they just ended up being very confused and unsure, really. Um, he didn't give them great, clear Directions and and they were very unsure. They often came. They came back uh, from Dublin from their couple of times when they went back. They came back really unsure about, more unsure than ever about. Do they have the power to sign? Should they refer back? What what what, what were the possibilities? Um, and and so he didn't. I think there was a, a sense in which they felt that De Valera, rather than being the great support and bulwark for them, was actually making life much more difficult for them. Well, sometimes I think that um, Griffith and Collins wanted to just get a thing, a thing they could bring back, put down in front of the doll and say, here, what, you know, you make, what do you make of this? I think there's definitely an element of truth in that. Um, for Collins, he has, he has, he has taken huge risks to come to London. He has come out from the shadows. He is now, everybody knows who he is, as photographs in the paper. You know, people know now Michael Collins in a way they didn't before. Um, and he's also very aware of, of, of you know, the longer this goes on, 
um, the risk that this could actually end up in a really big, messy split. Um, so, so to try and get something early before they're, you know, trying to keep everything together, bring it back, get the dole to vote on it. Um, and, and, and seeing what the British red lines were, that were the, the immovable red lines, and getting as much as they could at that point, which is already a huge amount. To get Dominion status when that had been not on the cards in May is a really big shift. And um, that, you know, that I think was, I think his rationale was to, to, to move before, you know, while there's still also an IRA in the, in the event the war does break out again. So, you know, if negotiations had gone on for a year, what would the state of the IRA have been if you had to go back to war a year after talks? Um, so, so I think, you know, he has real pressures operating on from a military point of view that perhaps de Valera doesn't see. And then de Valera's ideas like external association, that was never going to fly with the British from their monarchist point of view. When you read the external association rubric that he was putting forward, that was a non-starter. So he was, he was... He was too removed from the talks. He was too removed from the reality of what was actually on the table. Well, external association was um, his formula. Um, was it the one that came to him when he was tying his shoelaces one, one day? Wasn't that the – it just came to him. But typically it was a like a, like a mathematical diagram. Yeah. Well, Barton has this thing about draw, – draw these circles, these, these circles. This is us and there's Ireland. This is Britain and there's Ireland. And th- these are the, the, there were the five – there were five, the five dominions within the first circle, but Ireland was in the second circle but connected. So, yes, it was like a it – was, it was a diagram. So, essentially, the external association means that uh, we'll associate with the empire in all treaties and wars and stuff – uh, and we will recognise that the king is the head of that association, but he's not our head of state. And, that, and De Valera says in the debate, you may say there's very little difference, but here's the difference I have, is that the king is not the head of state. We are nego- engaging as a um, free people, freely, with this association. But it, De Valera's first reply to Lord George in July um, 1931 his, his, he said in, in his reply saying, you know, Ireland is a sovereign, independent country um, and we don't want to have anything to do with imperial entanglements. We just don't see... We, we see he was very much playing a card which was uh, common currency at the time. Empires were bad things. They were the cause of ruinous wars, as he said. We don't want imperial entanglements. But it's really odd then that his external association scheme, albeit that Ireland is outside this Commonwealth, but they are entangled for war. And so, actually, is is an imperial entanglement. But also, it would have meant leaving the empire. I mean, external association meant leaving the empire. And as we were saying earlier, there was no way the British Empire could allow that kind of break in the chain to, to, to come about for, for a, a country in the empire not to have the monarch as head of state. Effectively, meant it wasn't in the empire. And, and De Valera knew that. With the, with, but it was it was a non-starter for the British. That oath of allegiance and dominion status was kind of their final red line. And they had gamed the talks in August, so they knew how far they were prepared to go and where they were, where they would stop. And um, but I think it is important, you know, to, to think about what the, the long-term strategy was. You were talking about a Dominion status as a stepping stone, and that's absolutely, absolutely key. All the issues that were being debated in the door that were problematic in terms of oath of allegiance, a lot of them get, you know, they fall away through the interwar period, particularly because the Irish could pick their own governor general, right? Um, and, and ultimately, you know, the lot, through, 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 the, through, through politicking, you could actually undermine the treaty and, 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 and work through it to, to achieve greater independence step by step. Um, and the other thing is that by De Valera taking this oppositional position to the treaty before, you know, literally as soon as it arrived in Dublin, before the Dáil had voted on it, set up the treaty for failure. Um, and it set up a counter-narrative immediately that this, this, you know, this was not workable and this was a terrible thing for Ireland. And that's, you know, that, that really, the press was for the treaty, the public ended up being for the treaty. Um, you know, the, the public were further ahead than, than actually some of the TDs on this. Remember, these are TDs who've been on the run. They haven't met with their constituents. It's only when they go home at Christmas and meet their constituents and their constituents in the church say, actually, we want this, we want the solution, we don't want war again, that they realise that, the, that, you know, they're not in the same place as the public. So the treaty was offering, you know, it had clauses like the Council of Ireland, uh, to allow for working with Northern Ireland. He'd had um, clauses on the safeguarding of minorities, things that were really important for Northern Ireland's nationalist communities. And, and, and the, you know, they were so busy arguing about the Oath of Allegiance and not looking at how they could actually work with this treaty to get greater independence and perhaps to actually re-engage with the North, which at this point is going off on its own and is about to launch into sectarian bloodshed in the spring of 22. The press reaction might have been in, influential for de Valera in his very first hard response because he gets back to Dublin he t- he's peaked that they've signed this treaty and then the press is and, and there's a whole immediately there's a roller coaster of this is great, peace has come 
Ireland solved, etc. It's in Ireland, it's in worldwide, it's all over the press. So maybe he feels that he has to stop this juggernaut very quickly. Um, and it doesn't, if there had been a more muted response, perhaps he might have been able to finesse his response a bit more. But I, I think maybe his first hardline response was because I've got to stop this before it'll, it'll be all over. There won't be, there won't be a, a possibility of stopping this unless I dig in now. One of the um, uh, things we were talking about um, last week, Heather, about um, the um, Boundary Commission was the notion that um, had what Collins and Griffith both believed would fall into the free state basket, um, two counties and then bits of two other counties, that would that uphold Northern Ireland as an entity below the waterline and it guaranteed that it would fall into the free state there's this idea that's really common in, in discussion of the treaty at the time among nationalists that the, the Boundary Commission would make Northern Ireland unviable by giving parts of it uh, to the free state. And that's a really problematic idea. That's actually really quite wishful thinking. So if we look at elsewhere in Europe at the time, you know, you've got Danzig, which is basically a city-state under the League of Nations in the interwar period, operates economically perfectly well, you know. So small places could work economically. And I don't see the rationale, that, as, you know, for, for saying that if Northern Ireland had been four counties instead of six, six is already pretty small, um, that four counties somehow would, 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 would be unviable. I think that was really wishful thinking. And a lot of the time on the, on, on the Republican side, there was this wishful thinking that if the British would just go, the Unionists would find their true faith as Irishmen and it would all be solved. And there was no recognition of the embedded unionist identity. There was no real you know, unionist policy uh, from the Republican side uh, for dealing with this, this community that actually lived there and had its own internal British identity on the island of Ireland. And Belfast, as a huge industrial city, would have been able to drive a powerhouse of a four-county state, I think, you know, for, 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 through the interwar period, just as the six-county uh, uh, situation ultimately unfolded. I don't see the, the, the rationale for saying suddenly that that would have fixed it all. It was really wishful thinking, and it was a way of trying to sell the Boundary Commission. Another really important thing to, to mention about the, the the treaty, the delegates, when they came back to Ireland and realised that de Valera was so angry, it was very important for them to then play up this threat of war that Lloyd George had mm. made. We signed under duress. It was coerced. It was, you know, it was forced. Now, I, don't, I, I, think, I think one has to take that with a pinch of salt. These were tr negotiations going on during a war truce, right? There's always going to be a threat of returning to war from both the IRA and from the, from, from the British side, right? So, so this was something that had to be played up to defend themselves in those dual debates against their critics. So they welcomed, they have to keep they welcomed this pressure from yeah, Lloyd George yeah, to, to, yeah, to do yeah, this because it, it gave yeah. them a... Well, gives them, it gives yeah. them an argument to protect themselves with. And the problem is that that too then undermines the treaty because for the diehard Republican side, they can say, well, it was signed under duress. Look, the delegates were forced. And the delegates themselves had known self-interest at times in making that argument. And, and that was an argument made, again, right back at the beginning when there was a lot of discussion because we, we tend to think also that the, the, the discussion in, in, um, among the revolutionaries about the treaty started when the treaty was signed. But this had been going on from when Lloyd George letter. And one of the early points made was, um, yes, they're saying Ireland could be a dominion, but Ireland's being forced to be a dominion. It's not, it's not choosing to be a dominion freely. And, and then the, the whole argument about a dominion status won't work for Ireland because Canada is thousands of miles away and the crown close at hand, as I think Childers said, is a different story. Um, so um, Develop that point because um, in the Doyle debates, that whole idea of Ireland as a dominion is mocked by the anti-treaty side. The whole thing of it, that um, we could be like Canadians. Yes. Well, we, I mean, the, the main point was geography. Ireland is right by Britain. And, of course, the second thing that Lloyd George says, or he says Ireland can be like Canada, but Britain has to control the seas around Ireland because Ireland is a vital um, gateway for British imports, plus the fear that in another war a hostile foreign power would use Ireland as a way to attack England and, and even Childers saw this and very early on was offering a neutrality for Ireland uh, in, in, the, in, in, in order to uh, assuage that, that difficulty. Was there also a sense that um, and people like Austin Stack felt somewhat insulted by the notion that um, the Irish could be Canadians? I mean he said um, are they not of English stock? Of course they'll take an oath of allegiance. Of course they're happy to do that. Yeah. We're an ancient race. So that, yeah, there were two dimensions to, to the Dominion argument. One was, it doesn't really work practically because it's a different thing being Ireland right next to Britain because that gives Britain leverage or gives Britain powers that they can't exercise thousands of miles away. 
That was the kind of practical objection. The second thing, of course, was we are not British subjects. We are an ancient Irish independent race. And so the whole issue of sovereignty, so essentially on the British side, I think, they're saying, look, the dominions are essentially sovereign now. Uh, I mean, some people in law might say they were sovereign. You can have that. But but for Ireland, for de Valera, sovereignty meant... And at uh, uh, this kind of independence, and, and and if they wanted to look at a contemporary uh, option, it was other small states in Europe that were becoming sovereign states. But again, um, it wasn't possible in the circumstances. We're coming to the uh, near the end of our discussion now, so I want to just sort of um, get a, a kind of a, a, um, a sense from both of you. You've, you've already touched on it, um, uh, and you've touched on on the um, what happens now, because the, one of the things that's so striking is the speed of how things developed. So look forward in the crystal ball the next six months from where we are here at Hans Place going to sign the treaty. How does it unfold? Well, you have these extraordinary debates in Ireland uh, in the Dáil and the beginnings of the Civil War. Um, you have the attempt that the, 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 the public nature of the split, which they'd managed to contain all those kind of agreements and divisions they'd managed to contain, the public nature of that. You have, in Britain, you have this idea of, right, we've, we've done with Ireland now. Ireland's gone. Um, it's, it's, it's a, 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 I mean, Churchill would talk about a, a tiresome issue that will no longer be devil British politics. We can now get on with other things. And, of course, it comes back again in a few... It doesn't go away at all because, of course, once they began to implement the Boundary Commission a couple of years later, there's another big debate because they said, we can't... The the, the diehards say we can't have this Boundary Commission, that we don't want this to happen. And so Ireland and the Ulster question is back in in the centre of British politics. But in Ireland, things have moved very, very quickly. Uh, And in a way, some of the... Collins is trying by trying to kind of tinker with what the treaty um, allows the free state to do is already trying to start running across the stepping stones. Yeah, I mean, basically what happens as well is you, you, have, you have a shift to, 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 to what's going on in Northern Ireland um, and sectarian violence breaking out there and you have a question, well, what is going to happen with regard to the IRA and Collins and are they going to, you know, are they going to use force in Northern Ireland? What's, you know, what, how's that going to unfold? And actually the, the, the split that then leads into the Irish Civil War takes the pressure off Northern Ireland and allows it to consolidate. So the, 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 had there not been a treaty, had they not split, there's that question mark about what would have happened with regard to partition. Okay, we're coming to the end uh, of our time here in Hans Place. My thanks to my guests, Heather Jones and Morris Walsh, to the Roadcaster team, Michael McLaughlin and Damien Gavigan, and editor Emma McNamara, and the very understanding residents of Hans Place, Knightsbridge. Mm-hmm.